Well, our start-off verse for our third session is the same as the first, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And if you want to just make a note there on your outline, Revelation chapter 22, and there is uh, a reference there I'll begin to read in verse verse number 1. We're not going to have the time to dive into this text, but I thought it would be good to illustrate uh, what we're trying to study here to reach Muslims. And the Bible says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This is speaking of, of heaven, the end times. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. We just note, note that. They, speaking of believers, will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So as we jump into this study of Islam, which is such a dark religion and and a hurtful philosophy on life, let's just remember that there is a day coming. And when God says it will come, that means that it will come. So let's just approach this study not as one of defeat, for it would make us fearful for our country or our personal lives, but it would just cause us to say, you know what? The world is full of problems. And there are, there are over a billion Muslims who do not hold Jesus as Lord. But the Bible tells me that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So I just wanted to set the stage for that and hopefully prepare our hearts. Uh, We're going to go through a few um, of these verses. This is where we left off last time, Jesus and Muhammad. If you want to get the full, uh, I guess, set of these comparisons, you can go on the website. Those notes are up. Uh, Just a few comparisons here. Jesus said, all who live by the sword will perish by the sword. Muhammad said, know that paradise is under the shades of swords. Little difference in philosophy there, right? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad said, when you meet the infidels, strike off their heads till you have made a great slaughter among them. And of the rest, make fast the fetters or the chains. In other words, meet them on battle, destroy them. If there are survivors, then enslave them. A little different than what Jesus taught. Jesus said, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Muhammad said, against them make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including steeds of war, horses of war, to what? Strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies, and others besides whom you may not know, but whom Allah doth know. Jesus, forgive your enemies, or love your enemies rather, and pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad said, this is where we ended last time, if God gives me victory over the Quraysh, which is a certain Arabic tribe, in the future, this is grotesque but historical, I will mutilate 30 of their men. By God, if God gives us victory over them in the future, we will mutilate them as no Arab has ever mutilated anyone. 
That's not exactly what Jesus taught at all. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus, who, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Muhammad said, quote, Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods, for theirs in return is the garden of paradise. But here's the catch. They fight in His cause. What's the cause? And slay and are slain a promise binding on Him in truth. Last time we discussed the topic of us looking at people who would commit suicide by, by blowing themselves up. And we say, that's, well, what do we say? That's what? Crazy? Stupid? Just bizarre. Like, why would you do that? Take a step back, and if you truly think that there is no grace that the only way you can have even a small chance, a crack in the door, so to speak, to enter into heaven is to do what the Quran says to do, which is to die in the cause of Allah, then the most rational thing, right, that you could do to escape eternal damnation is to go out in a blaze of glory, if we can put that American tag on it. So, obviously, this is not true, okay? We do... The Quran is not the revelation of God, but if you think that it is, then it makes all the sense in the world to act on it. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So according to Jesus, how does the hate with Christians work? Is it Christians hating, projecting the hate, or... It's receiving. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, you guys are going to be hate magnets. Wherever you go, and if you truly don't water down my message, which none of the disciples did, praise the Lord, because you couldn't really make money at Christianity yet. And they preach the gospel. Jesus says, when you preach this, people will hate you. That's an, that's, that's, that, that right there is just, I think, a, something to cause all of us to reflect upon and say, if me inviting someone to church brought instant hatred. If me sharing Jesus brought instant persecution, would I still, would I still do it? But here's, here's Muhammad. He says, uh, this, is, this is in the Quran, There is for you an excellent example to follow in Abraham and those with him. When they said to their people, We are clear of you and of whatever you worship besides Allah, we have rejected you and there has arisen between us and you enmity and what? Hatred forever unless you believe in Allah and him alone. And in our second study of Islam, we looked at the very foundations of when Muhammad died, there was the split, the Sunnis and the Shiites, the majority and the minority, and from the very beginning, there was bloodshed. It was born in bloodshed. Muhammad was a warrior, and those who followed after him were men of blood. Somebody tell me when uh, David... Was, was, was communing with God. What did God tell David in relation to the temple and the shedding of blood? That you can't build it because you're in blood. Exactly. Now, time out. David killed bad guys. Right? We don't have any record of David committing what we would call today uh, just slaughter of non-combatants or anything. I mean, he was a warrior who fought warriors. But even still, in God's eyes... Human life is so precious that if a person 
David became David by shedding blood, that somehow in God's economy and in God's revelation who he is, human life is of such value that even though David was was taking out the enemies of Israel, God says, I want to reserve who's going to build my temple for a man whose hands have not been dipped in the blood of tens of thousands of people. Now, turn around and see it from the other direction. Muhammad was David, but yet declaring war upon innocent people, leading raiding parties against his enemies, and it's just, it's so topsy-turvy, it's hard to even compare Jesus and Muhammad. I mean, seriously, if we're actually looking at it, they're so diametrically opposed in what they taught and what they did, that I think just the fact Muhammad and Jesus, I think almost, if we've got to be careful, that would be just a little bit blasphemous. And I know we're only just like five minutes into it, this is already heavy. We all okay? I mean, it's, it's just, it's just so, um, so opposite. But here, here are a few um, texts in the Quran that speak about paradise and heaven. This is in chapter 38, or 78, verse 31. The Quran says, But for the God-fearing is a blissful abode in closed gardens and vineyards and damsels or young women with that and then their peers in age. Quran chapter 44, verse 48 says, Thus it shall be, and we will wed them to virgins with large dark eyes. Chapter 52, verse 20 says, On the couches ranged in rows shall they recline, and to the damsels with large dark eyes will we wed them. So right out of the gate, does this sound more like a sensual Hugh Hefner paradise for men, or does it sound like something that an all-wise, holy creator God would create? That's a great way to put it, Scott. It's a flesh satisfier. That's that's a great phrase. I don't think I can improve upon that. That's exactly what it is. It's all steeped in what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, the lusts of the flesh and the the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. You see, the Holy Spirit comes into our, our life to say that this is not the apex of existence, sex and so forth. But this is just, I think, in small part... Um, a window into women in the Islamic world. <clears throat> we'll go past that. Uh, here are some verses uh, of the sword. If you want to do a Google search on this, you can find verses of the sword in relation to jihad and in the Quran. Here's a few. Uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. The Quran says, Kill those who join other gods with God wherever you may find them, and seize them, besiege them, and lay wait for them, with every kind of ambush, but if they shall convert and observe prayer and pay the obligatory alms, then let them go their way, for God is gracious and merciful. Now, if you're reading the Quran and you're saying, this is the revelation from God, I will obey this, what type of actions would this produce? Wherever you may find them. Yeah, it's, it's unrestricted warfare. Methods and locations. So Geneva Convention is a Western thing. That goes out the window. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 76 says, Those who believe fight in the cause of God. Chapter 8, verse 12, I will instill terror into the hearts of the infidels, strike off their heads. 
then and strike off from them every fingertip. But y'all get the picture? There's a lot more of these that we could go through, but we're just going to go to the next section. One thing that I think is good for Americans, because everybody's like, oh my word, I'm scarred from, you know, Bible study. But these are things that don't get mentioned. Anybody remember from the first session? I know that's going back like two months because we've had so many things happening. But um, what did Bill Clinton say in relation to Islam and peace? said it's religion of peace. What did George W. Bush say? Same thing. Tony Blair. 9-11 has, quote, nothing to do with Islam. You see, here's what we want to do, because we know there is a day coming in which God will judge the world in righteousness. We know that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He's King of Kings. And there's going to be that day of reckoning. But what we have to do as believers is educate ourselves on what others believe so that we can know how to present the gospel to them. And so this is something that our politicians and a lot of people who simply, quote, want to keep the peace don't mention. Because when you mention these, what type of emotions come up in most people? What's Absolutely. Everything that's not good for a nice dinner time conversation. Like all of that stuff goes out the window, but because we love Jesus, we have to find out the truth about what is taught. Can I ask a question? Yes, ma'am. The infidels, is that people in general or is that Christians? That's a great question. An infidel, according to the Quran, would be someone who does not believe that there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. In other words, non-Muslims. They do make a little exception. For example, if we were in a Muslim land, they would say that we as Christians, because we believe in the Bible and they also believe in Abraham and in Moses and so forth, that we're, quote, people of the book. So we could live there, but we would have to pay basically a punitive tax for not being Muslims. But we wouldn't be, in a sense, eradicated like Hindus. And it'd be an interesting you guys have some time this summer to go look up the conquest of Muhammad and, or I guess, his followers after he died going into India. They showed no quarter because they believe in millions of gods, which is absolutely unthinkable for a Muslim. So, yeah. And they would give the same treatment to Jews that they would to us if they're following the Quran, which a lot of times doesn't happen that way. We just seen an example of that on the news this week where they brought the soldier out of Fort Hood, Texas, you know, to try to see converted to Islam. Yeah, but, 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 and once again, we're not going to get into all of the peripherals, but we were told that that was an instance of workplace violence, not an instance of religious motivated murder. No, seriously, that was, that was the official thing. So that's, that's one of the things, we're not trying to create fights and stuff like that, but we need to know the truth and what would cause someone to do that. Some people go crazy, but if someone is saying Allahu Akbar and quoting things like this, and killing people when what they're quoting says kill people, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to put two and two together on that. We'll just, uh, we'll just let you guys go back and if you want to read some of these later. But there's a discussion question I'd like to throw out here. And this is, I guess, from more moderate Muslim scholars. They will say the references to fighting and jihad in the Quran have to do with fighting against your lower nature. But it has nothing to do with physical violence. It has everything to do with what we as Christians would call struggling against the flesh. 
But if you hold to that interpretation, you've got to do a lot of spiritualizing to the text, right? When we're talking about horses, well, what, what do the horses represent if they don't actual, actually represent horses and cutting off fingertips and heads and, and chains and fetters and so forth? Those things, you have to really do a lot of violence to the actual text of the Quran to get it to say what it doesn't clearly say. Now, do Muslims do, want to fight against the, the desires of the flesh? Talk to one. Most of them say absolutely. That's why they pray five times a day. But to say that the Quran doesn't speak of actual warfare is to, is to just pull out, honestly, your white out like a lot of liberal Christians have done to the Bible and the parts that make them uncomfortable or parts that are very politically incorrect. They say, we'll just kind of cut that out. Well, if you're a good Muslim, you, you do, but I, I think, and Ben and I have talked a good bit about this, it seems that in the Muslim world, obviously not all Muslims are terrorists, okay? Like if you meet a Muslim, it doesn't mean that they have their, the back of their car loaded up with diesel and fertilizer and going to take everyone out. But the question is, if you truly believe this, then you're going to be involved in it in some way. Let's look at it from another angle. How many Christians say, I believe the Bible is the word of God? I believe that Jesus is the son of God. But what did Jesus say? Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. How many Christians go for years and decades and never share the gospel? Never invite someone to church? They just simply shut up about it. So it really begs the question, that's a great, great point. There's a lot of Muslims who are nominal. And if you want some great information about Islam in Europe, talk to Toby and Lily, we've had a good conversation about that, but I would say there's just as many Muslims who don't actually follow the Quran as there are quote, unquote, Christians who say, I love Jesus, but they don't, they don't give to Jesus, they don't talk about Jesus, and so forth and so on. Does that? Okay. But, um, Good point. He was a little more Good point. Yeah, that's a great point. So what did, what did Muhammad do? He went to war. You know, what did Jesus do? So we can kind of define, like, if, if God's... That's a great point. If God's revelation came through Muhammad, then the best way to interpret it is to see what he actually did, not what somebody on a late-night talk show tells us that he meant. But you ever seen these, these bumper stickers here that coexist? Okay. Um... A lot of times this comes out when you're talking to people who are kind of new agey and they say, we just need to coexist. Do Christians have a problem coexisting? And by coexisting, we mean live next to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and not killing them? I mean, seriously? Here's, here's the problem. There are some groups in the world, some radical Muslims, who do have an issue with that. And we'll talk more about, if we hopefully we can get to it, about my interview with an, with an imam. Muslim leader. Uh, early Islamic missionary activity, uh, we went over some of this. Muhammad converted about half of Mecca, then later, or Medina, and then he took the message by a sword to Mecca, and then most of the Middle East he took over. Um, looking at the beginning, Christianity was spread by missionaries, whereas Islam was spread by military men. Christianity spread was spread by the blood of its martyrs, whereas Islam spread by the blood of conquered peoples. Not only was Christianity not spread by violence, but Christians were killed by the thousands 
especially early on, whereas Muslims made war upon those who posed no threat or opposition to the lands of Muhammad. Christianity was spread by missionaries. Islam was spread by, by marauders. And historically, I think this helps us to understand uh, a lot of the tension, is that Constantinople, which is uh, modern-day uh, in Turkey, the, the Muslims laid siege to it. So this is, this is modern-day, anybody know? Istanbul. Istanbul, Turkey. And before it was Istanbul, it was capital of the Eastern Christian Empire, so to speak, the Greek Greek speaking. And then Muslim the Muslims invaded Western Europe until they were stopped in France by Charles Martel. They called him the hammer. And Spain was actually dominated by Islam for around eight hundred years, uh, ending in fourteen ninety two when the Spanish began to drive the Moors. If you've seen the uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves Morgan Freeman plays a Moor, a Muslim warrior, and all of that that happened during that time. So really, there has always been jihad from the beginning. It's just that Western Europe was able to stop it. It's not a new thing at all. It's, it's something that actually goes, goes far back. <clears throat> um, this is just a map here of some expansion. You see here Saudi Arabia that was conquered during Muhammad. Uh, during the caliph or the leader right after Muhammad. It's the lighter red. They spread into the Middle East. All of these areas, by the way, were, were Christian by the time that Muhammad was living. And then it spread up into North Africa and Spain uh, later on, after 750 A.D. So this is an area that was most people would claim the name of Christ, but it was a convert-or-die type of missionary endeavor. <clears throat> Um, this is this is a bigger map on how far some of the uh, the wars went. Have you guys ever noticed um, Western Europe, like German cars, German engineering, the British, the French, able to 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 advance in works of literature and works of art, uh, inventing things? But Eastern Europe has always kind of been behind, hasn't it? You know, we don't, we don't really hear about, you know, stuff from Bulgaria that's changed the world and so forth. But if we really look at history, for, for hundreds of years, the Ottoman Empire, which was, was modern-day Turkey, they were at war with Eastern Europe. I think on our second time that we studied this, there were, there were what were called the Janissaries. And, and imagine this, growing up in Eastern Europe, moms are trying to raise your sons, but there's no way that your country, as small as it is, could oppose the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim Empire. So they would come and they would find the biggest, strongest boys, and they would take those boys, they would brainwash them, and then they would turn them into a type of special forces called the Janissaries that were absolutely fanatical. And then once those boys were trained and grown, they would use them to fight their own people. So Western Europe was isolated. You've got the Atlantic on your west, and you've got Eastern Europe, a wall of people on you know, your eastern side. So that, that, I think that helps us understand history and a lot of the pain in Eastern Europe, which really causes us to look, for example, Kosovo, early 90s. Who got slaughtered? The Muslims did. Was it right? Absolutely not. But the West looks at it, America looks at it like, how could you do this? There's no excuse for it. 
Absolutely not. But if you look back a couple of hundred years, or even during World War I, the Turkish Empire was destroyed in World War I, there, was, there were genocides going on against Greeks, uh, I guess we could say Greek Orthodox Christians. So all of it goes back and forth, and that's something that we would do very well to try to understand that it's not just random things that happen, they have deep roots. Which is honestly why Jesus' teaching on love your enemies, if someone forgives, then it stops there. And that, that, that would change the face of the world in and of itself. Uh, so here's a question. What exactly is jihad intended to spread? It's intended to spread Sharia, which is Islamic law. Which means that the way that your society is structured is based upon what the Quran actually says. <clears throat> and this is an interview that I had with an imam several years ago in Greenville, South Carolina. And here's some questions that I asked and answers that he gave. I asked, uh, what country best represents Sharia? In other words, what country best represents a Quran-driven, Quran-based government? He said Saudi Arabia, but they're only 70% where they need to be. Now, in Saudi Arabia, it's illegal, punishable by death, if you convert from Islam to any other faith or belief. Second question, how does Sharia fit with the U.S. Constitution? Because for a Muslim, is it okay to convert from being a Muslim to another faith? Ultimate no-no. What does the First Amendment say in regards to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press? to publish whatever they want to because they're free, that clashes. So here's his answer. He said, if there is a clash, if there is a disagreement, the Constitution must be replaced by the Quran. Another question um, I asked, based upon that, I said, well, would there be any voting? And he said, everything that is stipulated within the Quran, there is no voting on that. It just is, and it's law. <clears throat> These would be some of the issues. For example, no more pork chops. Pork, consumption of pork, no bueno. Uh, no alcohol, which I saw our local newspaper, and we had, I guess, three indicted in a moonshining case here. So Franklin County, you know, no alcohol. Uh, no interest could be charged uh, on any loans. No lying or cheating in business. Good luck, right? I don't care what religion you are. Good luck on that. Yeah, absolutely. No gambling, uh, which honestly would not be a bad idea because gambling preys upon the poor. It's a tax upon the poor and those who, who just don't get it. It's an immoral thing. So I think we should agree with them there. Uh, no speaking against or questioning Islam. Remember a couple years ago when the comic was spread around the world of Muhammad as a, anybody remember what animal? This is a pig, and there were riots in certain areas of the world. That's because people believe you cannot question or speak against Muhammad or the Quran in any way. There would be a mandatory zakat, which is like a 2.5% uh, higher than what most Baptists give tithe uh, to support Islam around the world. And uh, for things such as robbery, uh, you would lose a finger or a hand. And this was, this was in... in Greenville, South Carolina, we're having this conversation. Fornication, 100 lashes. Uh, adultery would be stoning. 
if you did drink, if you found some liquor that was illegal to buy, uh, there would be different level of lashes. But if you did convert from being a Muslim, it was a capital punishment, be a capital crime. And for all of these, Imam Omar said that this is not acceptable. So the question is, how would you actually impose Sharia? This is something that we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, the different interpretations of what jihad actually means. Uh, number one, it would be against one's lower nature or bad desires. Secondly, um, against enemies of Allah. Third would be to defend against enemies of Islam. And number four would be to spread the message of Islam through Sharia. Yeah, who's keeping score on all that Okay, you you mean this whole list here of the no-nos? Well, from what I can remember, the book that that I that I looked at, Winfrey Cordue on neighboring faiths, he said that people would have a chance to argue before a judge, and like our judge, Judge Rice, Judge Alexander, they have the law, constitution, so forth to go by. The, the judge will basically be like a preacher or professor of theology because his rule book would be the Quran. So that's where it would eventually end up. And um, you know, even, even in Iran, they have like a Supreme Court. But the difference is, is that ours are based upon English common law, Judeo-Christian morality, where theirs is the Quran. That's a good question, though. Who's keeping tabs on that? And number four, to spread the message of Islam is to establish an Islamic society. So what would change in the U.S. if Sharia were imposed? There would be no voting on issues clearly spoken of in Quran or the Hadith. And the Hadith would be like the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which is a companion to interpret the Torah. <clears throat> Go past this. And so the question is, if you did engage in jihad, would it be a win-win situation? The way that it works is that the warrior would keep 80% of the spoils and 20% goes to Muhammad and Allah. And paradise is the prize of those who fall in battle. So really, for a man who's not been born again by Jesus Christ, this is a pretty good deal. I mean, either way, you win. So that would that would contrib- contribute to that. Uh, how many of you have heard that the Crusaders were all murderers and so forth. Usually the way it goes. Now, before we go into this, it was probably where we'll have to end tonight. We are not going to defend the Crusaders killing innocent people. Okay? It's wrong. And so if we started a Christian school, Rocky Mount Baptist Church Christian School, we would not name them the Crusaders. Alright? Because to a Jew and to a Muslim, it would basically be saying, oh, you were the people who slaughtered my people, even though they gave up. But, since I've done some research, I think the fact that we've understood that Islam at the beginning began to spread east, west, north, and south, that once the Muslims stopped the Christians from being able to come to Jerusalem and see the grave of Jesus and so forth. They stopped all pilgrimages. It was then, and that combined with the Muslims invading Europe itself, that the European Catholics said it's time to act. Now that normally doesn't get mentioned at all, but here's just a few facts um, along that. 
We'll just read this, this statement by uh, Fergozi, which is a scholar uh, in Islam. He said, quote, The jihad is more than 400 years older than the Crusades. Comparing the Muslim occupation of Christian lands in Europe, the latter was much briefer and less culturally pervasive. Yet strangely, it is the Muslims who are the most bitter about colonialism and the humiliation to which they have been subjected. And it is the Europeans who harbor the same and the guilt. It should be the other way around. Now once again, the Crusaders and what most of which they did was wrong. But it helps us to be able to understand the motivations um, that, that caused them to, uh, to act. So we're just going to go, go past some of this. I'll, we'll put the, uh, the notes up. But something that's very helpful to, uh, to understand is that the fall of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey... Uh, in May of 1453, there are 90,000 Turks versus less than 10,000 Byzantines. as a Byzantine Empire. So what is modern-day Turkey used to be a Christian area, Christian uh, kingdom, so to speak. And that's actually what a lot of scholars say. Those fleeing scholars and thinkers, they, a lot of them ended up in Italy, which started the Renaissance. Very interesting, God's, God's sovereignty uh, and all of that. We'll go a little bit past this here and, um, and ask some questions here as we, as we wrap this up. Is Islam a religion of peace? What do you think? Okay. All right, let's do a little quick draw apologetics. People say, do you think that every Muslim is an active terrorist? No. What may be a good way to answer that while still not saying that the Quran does not teach violence. Because we know that it does, but we don't want to give off the impression, especially if you're talking to a Muslim, that they think, that you think, that they are Osama bin Laden. I think one, there's probably a lot of ways to approach this, but one way that I would approach this is to say there's many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, Christians, but they don't actually follow Jesus. It's a cultural identity, right? For many people, their family's Baptist, so they're Baptist, and so forth, whatever it may be. But within Islam, much of it is very cultural. Now, obviously, we don't want to be like, so what we want you to do is go join up with Al-Qaeda. You know, if you're going to be consistent, we don't want to be a recruiter, obviously, for world terrorism. But it is something that we can say, you know what, there's a lot of people who don't claim to follow Jesus either. Let me show you, let me tell you what Jesus truly meant when he said, come follow me. And it can be your inroad for the gospel while letting them know that America, American culture is not quote-unquote Christian. Right? Because if you grew up in Saudi Arabia and you see MTV, I mean, seriously, MTV, BET, and that's not a racist statement, it's stuff that's in the gutter, You just turn on American television, and if they think that America is Christian, then honestly, what wholesome person would want their sons and daughters to go down that road of that lifestyle, right? So I think it's very, very important that we explain to Muslims that Jesus does not equal American television, right? Because most people, uh, many Muslims around the world, uh, from what I've been told, make that connection. There's just honestly too much to get through uh, in these notes. But what do you think in regards to this question? Uh, is Islam and democracy, do you think that they're actually compatible? 
Islam defined by belief in the Quran? Why not? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no voice. In other words, it is this. And honestly, who gets to interpret that? The guy with the gun. That's just that that's that's just that's just human nature. So so for us in the West, we we have the belief that we can by the fact that we're people made in God's image, as the Constitution says, endowed with inalienable rights, and that's not just an American thing, we have the right to disagree. And I, I read a statement, it said, for, for Westerners, not just Americans, but for people in the West, coercion or forcing people into or out of a religion is unconscionable. We can't, we can't conceive of that being right. Whereas within the Islamic world, allowing people leave Islam is unconscionable. So it's a total change, a total opposite in worldview. So when we talk to Muslims, it's very helpful for us to understand that they're thinking, when we're like, yeah, freedom, they're thinking, oh no. And then when they mention it's the Quran or else, we're thinking, oh no. So once again, it, 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 I think it helps to, to understand at least where they're coming from, even though we, we disagree with them. So number three, and we've, we've kind of gone over this, what is a nominal or a, quote, secular, unquote, Muslim? Someone who says that I'm a Muslim, but they don't actually obey what the Quran teaches. The question is, are you a real Muslim? And this, I think, is a great springboard for evangelism because you don't even have to go to the Gospels yet. You can say, well, you believe that the Quran is God's word to us? It is God's revelation? Yes. Well, do you follow the Quran? Do you do everything that it commands? And it commands a whole lot, doesn't it? I mean, it is when Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light and all that. And I mean, it's the opposite. It is just religion and it's crushing to see I can never earn God's approval. But maybe if I die in warfare, I mean, what is that? We can say do you pray five times a day? And even if they do, there's the thoughts of the heart and the intents that we know, that we all have, that are wrong. But the question is, can you even be a good Muslim in Jesus' sight, or in God's sight, rather? And if they're being honest with you, then you say, you know, Isa, Jesus, that your Quran says as a prophet, let me tell you about Jesus. And Jesus came and he perfectly obeyed God's law for us where we broke God's law. And you can go through it because they believe in the Ten Commandments too. Isn't that cool? I mean, I'm telling you, a lot of times we as Christians get so afraid of Muslims, but we have so much in common with them in a sense that we believe in that, that Moses was a historical figure, that Abraham actually lived and all of that. But the difference and the ultimate difference is Jesus. But you can get to Jesus easier with a Muslim than I think that you can with a Hindu or a Buddhist. Because they don't have the same foundation at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. If you just want to get down, do some, Ms. Brenda, I mean, I mean, mix martial arts, apologetics, just get in the, just get in the gutter and be like, Muhammad's still in the ground, Jesus' tomb is empty. Boom. But you don't want to, you don't want to say boom. You know, because it's not, it's not, it's not about winning the argument, you know. But you could do that. But once again, we've gone over this. Are nominal Muslims real Muslims? We can answer that question by asking, are nominal 
Christians or Christians in name only actually followers of Jesus? And according to Jesus, absolutely not. Not. In other words, not only are you not my follower, but you're a child of Satan. That's Jesus' words to people who would say, I follow you. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I command you. What I can um, number four, and we'll have to wrap it up on this one. Why is religious freedom often restricted in Muslim countries, whereas Muslims are given the freedom of religion in Western countries? Well, that's foundational in their scripture and faith. You know, Muhammad started out by forcing people to convert at the point of the sword, whereas Jesus said if you are in a town and you give the message and they reject you, Shake the dust mm. on your feet and leave. Uh, not, mm. Never does he say force. Mm. Mm. Good word. Good word. What type of beliefs do you have to have for there to be freedom? Religion, speech, press? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those things are actually good. That we've been made in the image of God. And God is not what we would call, or he did not make us to be machines. He gave us minds with which we can talk and debate and research and communicate with each other. So therefore, when we witness to someone, it's not, you know, getting them in a chokehold. It's trying to lead them gently to the feet of Jesus, and he's the one who saves them. But really, I think that this would be another gut-level apologetic move. A God who demands, who requires Coercion is kind of weak. But if you are a God who has so much influence by the power of your spirit and by the power of the spoken word of God's word, the gospel, that you can transform hearts and change lives, that's a powerful God that says, come to me, repent, believe, confess the name of Jesus and you will be saved. That's power. But pettiness? Pettiness says, I have to put a gun to your head for you to tell me that you'll follow me. And that is very offensive, but I think that that's something that we need to have in our quiver of apologetic arrows. What is power? Power is influence. That applies in business. It applies in school. It applies parents, grandparents, when you're dealing with the little ones. Power is influence, but yet... If you have to use coercion, it shows that you don't have influence. And I think that if if Muslims are right, that God is great, Allahu Akbar, He is great above everything, nothing can compare to God, then why does God need you to put a gun to somebody's head?